Striving for Eternity and the Bible Thumping Wingnut are happy to announce the Judge Not Conference, August 11 and 12 in Amstead Falls, Ohio, at Amstead Falls Baptist Church. Speakers include Phil Johnson, Mike Abendroth, Justin Peters, J.D. Hall, and Chris Roseborough. Also included is a debate at 7 p.m. on Friday on the topic of the Charismatic Gifts. Continuationism versus Cessationism. You can register for the Judge Not Conference at judgenotconference.org. Don't miss this awesome opportunity and fellowship on the topic of apologetics and evangelism. Judge Not Conference, judgenotconference.org. Register today. Is the church today doing everything it can to provide women a firm foundation of truth in Christ Jesus? Well, it's true there's no shortage of candy-coated Bible studies, potluck fellowships available to ladies. But beyond Sunday morning, are Christian women being properly equipped to stand against the same deceptions that even enticed Eve in the garden? In an attempt to address the need for trustworthy, biblical resources for women, No Compromise Radio is happy to introduce Equipping Eve, a ladies-only radio show that seeks to equip women with fruits of truth in an age that's ripe with deception. My name is Mike Abendroth, and I'm pleased to introduce your host, Aaron Benzinger, a friend of No Compromise Radio and a woman who wants to see other women equipped with a love for and a knowledge of the truth of God's Word. Well, hello, ladies, and welcome to Equipping Eve. I am your host, Erin Benziger, and this is the show that seeks to equip you with fruits of truth from God's Word so that we can stand strong on that Word in an age of deception, right? We just heard that tagline. What does that mean? Fruits of truth. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about God's Word, the Bible. That would be the 66 books contained in your Bible. 66, I say that for a reason. Look it up. Send me an email. We'll explain that further. So, fruits of truth. We're not cherry-picking. Okay, that's really important for us to understand when we study Scripture, that you don't just go in and... Pick out a verse that makes you feel good or a half of a verse that's even worse, and yet so many quote-unquote Bible teachers do that. We don't just go in and cherry-pick the truths that we like or the truths that seem to fit our situation if we pull them out of context. We take the whole of God's Word, right? The entirety of God's Word is, wait for it, God's Word. Therefore, the entirety of God's Word is true. Why? Because God is true. God is truth. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by through me. The truth. God is truth. He cannot lie. That has been true from eternity past and will be true for all of eternity. He is immutable. He does not change. And that's marvelous. Isn't it, ladies? It's marvelous that our God does not change. And because he does not change, his word does not change. And the truths contained within that word do not change. They cannot by their very nature because they are the word of God. And God, by his very nature, does not change. It makes sense, doesn't it? 
It makes sense if we sit and we think things through logically and rationally using the good sense that God was gracious to give us. These things make sense. And then it makes you wonder why some people so ridiculously interpret the scriptures. Doesn't it just make you wonder how people can say, oh, yes, this passage of scripture means exactly what it says. But this one over here, we need to spiritualize it. It means something other than what it said. It has a deeper, more spiritual meaning. No, no. No, no. The Bible is pretty clear. God doesn't stutter. He's made the Bible accessible to men. You don't need to be an elite group of Gnostics or popes or priests to interpret the scriptures. And we don't need to look for some hidden meaning that requires a decoder rain to figure out in order to know what the Bible says. We just need to read it. We just need to pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine the scriptures and open our eyes to see the truth that God has been good to put in those scriptures and to reveal to us. We love the Bible, not because we worship the Bible as a book, but because the Bible reveals to us the God who we do worship. The Bible reveals to us Jesus Christ, our Savior, our only way of salvation. So if you don't love the Bible or you are running around accusing people of worshiping the Bible because they speak highly of it, oh, my friend, please examine yourself. We speak highly of scripture because it is God's word and it reveals God to us and it reveals Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh who came and gave his life for sinners. That is why we speak very highly of the Bible. That is why we love God's word. Now, before we get started today, I have a book here. I think I've shared a little bit from this book before, but I buy these things because they're cheap. Let's be clear, I'm not spending lots of money on these ridiculous purchases. I only buy them if they're cheap. Um, and I think I've shared an excerpt or two from this in the past, but I came across it the other day and thought, oh, it's been a while. So let's take a look at this. It's called 365 Things to Do Before You Go to Heaven. So this will keep you busy for a whole year. And I did not start on January 1, so I'm behind. But I opened this up, and ladies, you you need to do this. You'll need to do this this thing before you go to heaven. Number 135, attend the prom or another formal gala. I'm not joking. It says this. If you were unable to attend your high school prom, it's not too late. Oh, goody. Sign up to be a chaperone at your local high school or attend a gala that requires formal attire. If you don't own the outfit you need, borrow it or rent it. That sounds scary. Get your hair done and rent a fancy car or limousine if you can afford it. It doesn't give a reason why you should do this, but apparently you should do this before you go to heaven. Okay. Let's see. What else do we have here? Oh, this is nice. 
Become one with nature for at least an hour today. Appreciate the warmth of the sun, the scent of the flowers, the shade of the trees, the melody of the birds. Really listen, see, smell, and feel what God reveals about himself through the world he created and renews every year. Hmm. You know, I was one with nature today. I was sitting outside this morning trying to enjoy a little bit of the early morning sunshine with my coffee. And uh, when I came inside, I realized I was so one with nature that I was covered in bug bites. So that was joyous. So God has revealed not about himself, but about his creation, that creation has fallen. And hence, mosquitoes and other biting gnats exist. So that's what I learned today from my time in nature. I'll stay inside now. So here's another fun one, and then we can move on, unless I find another fun one. Ride a motorcycle. Drive if you dare. Ride behind an experienced driver. Enjoy the wind on your face, the feel of the road, the nearness of the neighborhood. Notice things you do not see from a car. Remember how much you're saving on gas, and don't forget to wear a helmet and hang on tight. Really, this is supposed to be my priority before I die. That, no. Because if I get on a motorcycle, let me tell you, that will be the day I die. Because guaranteed... I would not last. That would just be awful. Here, beside the ocean, write a prayer for peace in the sand. Watch the tide come in and take your words out to sea. Imagine the waves delivering your prayer to beachcombers thousands of miles away. Well, that's dumb, first of all. That's just stupid sounding. And also, now I'm depressed because I don't live anywhere near the ocean. And let me tell you, I would love a vacation. What is that, by the way? My coworkers keep taking this thing called vacation. I don't know what that is. Listen, if I am on the beach, I'm just going to enjoy being on the beach and enjoy the sound of the ocean and and the smell of the salt water and all that wonderfulness. I'll be one with nature, not getting bit up by mosquitoes because those aren't there on the ocean. So anyway, before we digress too terribly far, let's get started on our topic for today. So that was your dose of nonsense for the day. Don't buy that book, 365 Things to Do Before You Go to Heaven. Uh, don't buy it. If you need some daily nonsense, let me know and I can I can uh, email you some from the book. So this, I think I had trouble finding the author before. Oh, contributing writers. Christine Dahlman, Deanna Deck, Lydia Harpert, and Carol Sticker. They're all women. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. What do we talk about today? Well, I have been thinking a lot lately about about a lot of things, but my thoughts have turned quite often to, and uh, providentially, I've come across blog posts and scripture and my scripture reading and sermons, um, not even looking for them. They're just the sermons that I'm hearing. Um a lot about grace. I've just been thinking about that balance that is so necessary in our Christian life between law and grace. And uh, I've, I've put a little bit of this on my blog at do not be surprised.com, which by the way is one way you can find me. Um, Equipping Eve, we do have a website, equippingeve.com or .org. They should both still take you there. And you can contact me at either of those. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. Just do a little search and you'll find us. And um, anyway, so I, I put a little bit of this on the Do Not Be Surprised blog. So if you follow that, maybe you saw a little teaser and um, 
it's just really been in my mind lately because God has been good to give me a lot of different experiences over the years. When I was a false Christian, I spent time in secret churches. I mean, hardcore secret driven churches. I attended Willow Creek. Okay. So you don't get much more seeker driven than that. So, um, let me tell you, I now see, and I'm sure I will continue to see for the rest of my life, how God used those experiences, how he used my past as a false Christian and my experiences there. And even my experiences after being saved, I've seen how he's used them and how he's taken his truth and he's just illuminated those experiences even more and glorified himself in that and how I've been able to see his truth. And and one of the things that I've seen along the way is um, both ends of the spectrum. You know, let us sin that grace may abound. And also, you need to be holy. You need to be holy as your father is holy. You need to be righteous. And here's 16,000 ways you can do that. And you better get started. And uh, if you don't get started soon, you're going to be in trouble. You're probably not even saved. You know, if you aren't feeling... Uh, just enthralled by reading this Bible passage, you probably aren't saved and etc, etc. So there are two ends of the spectrum here, right? And to be clear, I have never heard anyone preach, if you don't feel this way, you aren't saved. But the way that the message comes across, that's the implication. And uh, that's a place where we have to be really careful. And uh, ladies, we're not preaching, but we have to be very mindful of how we say things. Because it, if we are sending a message that if you don't do or you don't feel a certain way, you aren't saved, and we're talking to someone who is a Christian, we could be contributing to some major spiritual depression, major spiritual funk. Uh, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. So... All of this culminates in things rolling around in my brain, and that's where I've been thinking about this this notion, this doctrine of grace. And I'm not talking specifically about the doctrines of grace, those five points, if you will. I'm talking about actual, the doctrine of grace. Now, all of those five points, of course, culminate in God's grace, God's mercy, God's gospel, God's gospel of grace. What is interesting to me is that so often those who claim to hold to the doctrines of grace actually do not teach, preach, or live very much grace, do they? Do we? Let me put myself in there because I have been there and um, pray every day that I would not slip back there. It can tend to be a very spiritually prideful group, and I say that as one who has been a member Um a card-carrying member of the spiritually proud, and uh, it's not a good place to be. So let's go back before we, before I continue to get ahead of myself, which I am doing way too much here. Let's go back, all the way back to the Old Testament. And I want us to consider for a moment, ladies, the Abrahamic covenant. And I want you to consider this thought that the Abrahamic covenant is actually the foundational covenant of the Old Testament. It is not Sinai. It is not the Mosaic covenant. Now, if you are still listening, thank you. The law is not the foundational covenant upon which 
God's Old Testament scriptures are built. And that truth has major implications for our lives now. I'm going to take a moment and we're going to go off on a trajectory to highlight that by saying this, we are not diminishing the importance or the necessity of the law. I want to be really clear about that because it's all in God's word and all of it had a purpose and all of it continues to have a purpose. God's law continues to serve its purpose. I am just saying that we perhaps ought to consider and be mindful of the fact that that is not the foundational covenant of the Old Testament. Again, by saying that the Abrahamic covenant is the foundational covenant of the Old Testament, we are not diminishing the law. Why do we need the law? We need the law. Let me say that loud and clear. We need the law. We must have the law. Why? The law shows us our sin, right? Galatians 3, we'll start in verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Verse 24, Paul writes, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law serves like a mirror, right? And we look at the law and we see our sin. Romans 7, verse 7. Ladies, turn in your Bible to Romans 7, verse 7. And just a reminder, I typically use the New American Standard version here. I'll try to let you know if I'm using something different. If I'm quoting someone else, it might be a different version. But I use the NASB. So Romans 7, Paul writes, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died." And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The law is good, right? The law is good. It shows us our sin. The law is holy and righteous and good, says Paul. And I give that a hearty, hearty amen. Amen. 
R.C. Sproul writes, The first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. On the one hand, the law of God reflects and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. The law tells us much about who God is. Perhaps more important, the law illumines human sinfulness. Augustine wrote, The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. The law highlights our weakness so that we might seek the strength found in Christ. Hence, or here, the law acts as a severe schoolmaster who drives us to Christ. And that's exactly what we see Paul writing about, right? That's exactly what we just saw in Romans 7. So the law is good and holy and righteous and just and necessary, and it shows us our sin. And, very important, it points us to Christ. It drives us to Christ. It drives us to grace that is found in Christ alone. And we need the law. We need to have a right understanding of who we are before God, right? Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We need the law. And so I want to make that really clear because I foresee... Uh, someone taking my words out of context, which we say not to do for, about scripture, but we do it with people all the time, don't we? And I can see someone taking my words out of context, saying that I am running around saying, let us sin that grace may abound, grace, grace, there's no need for righteousness, holiness, whatever. Now they're really going to take that sound bite, aren't they? And Aaron's gone completely off the rails and... She's crazy, and she's just telling you to run around and sin so that grace may abound. No, no. We need the law. God gave us the law. It is good. It is perfect. It is holy. It is just, but it cannot save you. Newsflash. When was the last time you kept the law perfectly? You never did. You didn't. Nope. Nope, you didn't. I didn't. None of us did. None of us can. There's only one who did. It was Jesus Christ. And so the law shows us our weakness, as R.C. Sproul uh, writes, that we just quoted. I'd say it doesn't even just show us our weakness. It just shows us our utter depravity and inability, right? Our total depravity, our total inability. The first T, the T in Tulip, the first doctrine of grace there. And it shows us, uh uh-oh, oh, I need help. I, I can't keep this law, so how shall I be saved? Well, that's where grace comes in, right? That's where grace comes in. But if we only preach sanctification, we ultimately will lose the gospel of grace. And it is the gospel of grace, isn't it? 
Acts 20.24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. It is a gospel of grace. And so that's why it's important for us not to forget the Abrahamic covenant when we're looking at who God is. You know, God is not just a God of the New Testament. The Old Testament is the same God. It is exceedingly relevant to our lives today, even as New Testament believers. And the Abrahamic covenant, ladies, oh, it is grace. It is grace. Turn with me to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, we're going to read through this chapter. Moses writes, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Mm, Sounds to me like he was in the presence of the Lord. Verse 13, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Okay. God made a covenant with Abram. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Aptly named, right? The word covenant means to cut. And so that's why uh, covenants were symbolized by these animals being cut in two. And of course, the birds, they're too small. We don't cut them. So you cut them in two, you put them here. And then two people, if two men were making a covenant with one another, they would walk through the pieces. And you're essentially saying, may the same be done to me that has been done to these animals if I am to break this covenant. 
But what's fascinating about Genesis 15 and about this Abrahamic covenant, Abram did not walk through the carcasses, did he? It was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abram was in a deep sleep. The Lord passed between the pieces, meaning this is binding for the Lord. There is nothing that Abram must do for the Lord to keep his promise. Do you see that, ladies? Do you see, and I'm sure many of you are already aware of this, but it behooves us to go back to the basics, quote unquote, if you will, behooves us to go back and look at these marvelous truths of scripture again. And do you see here in the Abrahamic covenant how this is grace? How God has made these amazing promises to Abraham. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And it's going to be a while, but they will get this land. I will give them this land. Now, on a side note, this covenant and this truth has remarkable implications on other aspects of your theology, such as your eschatology. Because if God was not being true to this promise and will not fulfill it in the future because it has not yet been fulfilled, then we are all in trouble because that means that God is not a God who keeps his promises. He is not a God of his word, and we are in a great deal of trouble. But we'll come back to that. So do you see how this is an example of grace? Because, think about it, and I heard this in a sermon So, uh, and I will actually link to that sermon. So, um, I am copying this, this little bit here, but think about it. What if Abram had said to God, okay, God, but you know, what if my descendants end up becoming uh, crazy idolaters and uh, they hate you and they, they do everything you tell them not to do. And then what if uh, my descendants even further down the line actually end up crucifying your son and refusing to believe in him and submit to him and and claim him as uh, their as their own lord and savior and instead they just crucify him and murder him what then god then i guess this covenant isn't valid anymore is it well no that's not that's not what happened is it because that actually did happen the israelites did become idolaters the israelites did crucify jesus christ and yet god's word still stands why because man's disobedience cannot nullify the promises of God. It might delay the blessing, but it does not negate God's promises. We have to realize that, ladies. We have to realize that. Because if we don't, we will become so spiritually depressed that we will be useless. And let me tell you, there is nothing that Satan would love more than a whole bunch of depressed, useless Christians who are busy dwelling on their sin. I'm not saying we don't think on our sin. We don't mortify our sin. We don't grieve over our sin. We don't strive for holiness. Ask God to to grow us into more and more Christ-likeness. I am not saying we don't do those things, but I am saying if you sit around and just dwell on your sin and what a horrible, hopeless, useless person you are because you're such a sinner... Instead of turning your eyes to Christ, who died for your sin, 
let me tell you, Satan's going to love that. He's going to love that more than he loves um, guys like Stephen Furtick running around preaching craziness. He's going to love it more if a true Christian is absolutely paralyzed because they have forgotten the promises and the grace and mercy of God. That's why I love looking at this Abrahamic covenant because we see that this unilateral covenant made by God, God's promises to Abraham, we see that in spite of all that Israel did over the generations, God's promises are not nullified. They, they've not been completely fulfilled, but they will be. Mark it. They will be. Man's disobedience cannot nullify the promises of God. Might delay the blessing. It cannot undo God's promises. That is really, really good news for us, ladies. Really good news. This is a picture of grace. Do you see that? Let me end with this quote, ladies, and we're going to come back to this topic in the next show. This quote is from Jerry Bridges, his little booklet called Sins We Accept. Jerry Bridges writes, quote, As we struggle to put to death our subtle sins, we must always keep in mind this twofold truth. Our sins are forgiven, and we are accepted as righteous by God because of the sinless life and sin-bearing death of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater motivation for dealing with sin in our lives than the realization of these two glorious truths of the gospel. But, he goes on, we must learn to rely on the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it is by the Spirit that we put to death the sins in our lives. We're going to come back to this next time, ladies, but think on this. Regardless of how much we grow, says Bridges, we never get beyond our constant need of the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Yet, while depending on the Holy Spirit, we must at the same time recognize our responsibility to diligently pursue all practical steps for dealing with our sins. We have a vital part to play. We are responsible to put to death the acceptable sins in our lives. We cannot simply lay this responsibility on God and sit back and watch him work. At the same time, we are dependent. We cannot make one inch of spiritual progress apart from his enabling power. And we'll come back to this, ladies, which I've said three times now in the last 30 seconds. We'll come back to this because we're not done talking about this because it's amazing. God's grace is amazing and marvelous and wonderful and glorious and fantastic and undeserved. That's the very definition, isn't it? Unmerited favor. Think on that until next time, ladies. And be in your Bibles. Be on your knees so that you can be equipped. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Equipping Eve, a no compromise radio production. If you'd like to get a hold of Erin, you can reach her at equippingeve at gmail.com or you can check out one of her two websites, do not be surprised.com 
or equippingeve.org. Thanks for listening. 